Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 14, it's page 903 if you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table. We're going to be covering uh, verses 32 through 52 today. Chapter 14 is the longest chapter in uh, Mark's gospel. Um, And today we're going to witness the final moment of Jesus' freedom until the resurrection. This is the last moment where he's able to go where he pleases and be with whomever he wants. And it's going to rapidly decline from here. These verses are going to give us insight not only into the, the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for sinners, but also the depth of his heart for us. Before Jesus suffers on the cross, he agonizes in the garden. And by the end of this passage, Christ will utterly and totally be alone. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In Hebrews chapter 2 tells us in verse 17 and 18 that he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. In today's passage, we're going to see how merciful and faithful our high priest is, even in the midst of his deepest grief and sorrow. The irony is that because of his mercy and faithfulness, no one who follows Christ will ever have to be fully acquainted with the grief that he experiences here in the garden. But that leaves us then with a a bit of a dilemma this morning, because how do we as believers relate to the anguish that Christ feels over the cost of being our sacrifice? How do we relate to the Son of God's anxiety over bearing the wrath of the Father against our sins? How do we understand Christ's grief in the garden when on the one hand, we are the cause of it, and on the other hand, we've been forgiven? How do we walk away from this passage this morning with with neither guilt that Christ has set us free from, nor apathy diminishing what he feels here, but instead a deeper union with Christ himself. Well, I think we need to grieve with Christ alone in the garden so that we can rejoice with Christ alone in salvation. And that's what we're going to hopefully... Lord willing, do this morning. And so I want to read, it's a longer passage, but I want to read it in its entirety because I want us to feel as best we can the weight of what's happening here and the speed at which it's taking place. And then we'll kind of go back through it and, and, and hit some of these main thoughts and hopefully walk away here encouraged more deeply at the love of our Savior. So Mark 14, verse 32 through 52. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then he said, Abba, Father, 
All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came back again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And then he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but linen cloth was following him, and they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. I want to pray and ask God, to open our eyes this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that works together with your word to bring light to our eyes, to bring life to our souls. And we pray this morning that as your word is proclaimed that we see Jesus clearly as fully God and fully man, experiencing everything that we could ever uh, experience in this life and yet remaining faithful to the Father's will so that we could be reunited and made one together with you in the love that you share with the Son. This morning, God, would you encourage our hearts even as we see our Savior grieve. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So it's most likely now in the middle of the night, early Friday morning, The day that Jesus will be crucified, in a matter of hours, he will be on the cross. And Jesus and his disciples, they're they're back out on the Mount of Olives. uh, Their bellies have been full from the Passover meal that they just ate. And they, they come to Gethsemane, which is a garden of olive trees located in the valley of the mountain. And Jesus tells his disciples there to sit down while he goes ahead of them to pray. Now, he's done this before, right? He's gone away a couple other times in the gospel to pray. And so this isn't necessarily um, unusual. But then he takes Peter and James and John with him, sort of the the inner circle of the inner circle, if you will. The the companions that that he wants to share his, his grief with. Have you ever had someone like that? That knows your sorrow? Or at least that you hope would? And now away from others, these three men who who saw Jesus' transfigured glory on the mountain will see his trembling anguish in the valley. 
Verse 33 says that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And the sense here is that he's filled with alarm. This is uncomfortable language describing our Savior, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine that Jesus could be so shaken because it feels like, like there's sin involved, that there's doubt and fear and, and, and a lack of faith on his part in that sense. But Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he feels what we feel. He's acquainted with our grief, and even more so than what we could be. So why is he so troubled? Is he afraid of the, of the physical pain uh, and death that he's about to endure on the cross? I, I don't think any of us in here would be like, yeah, I'm ready to die, right? If we knew that, especially that that was coming, that, that a, a, a crucifixion type was coming. His sorrow is so crushing that it feels like death is already swallowing him up. He says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. And so the reason for his sorrow must be deeper than the fear of physical death, especially when he knows and has said on multiple occasions that he's going to be raised from it, right? Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, he's going to have to endure it physically, emotionally, mentally, all of those things. But he knows what's coming. Every time he's predicted his death, he's also predicted his resurrection. Physical death will not be final. So what is it that grieves Jesus' heart here? Greater than that. Look at verse 35. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So now Jesus leaves even Peter and James and John behind, and he goes a little further ahead of them, and he falls to the ground. The sense here is that he throws himself down in anguish. You remember back in chapter 5 when Jairus came up to Jesus, ran up to him and threw himself down at his feet, pleaded with him to save the life of his daughter? This is the same sense here. This is the same language Mark is using. Jesus falls to the ground. He throws himself down, and, and he petitions the Father. And he's utterly in, in grief and pain as he does. What does he pray? That if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him, that, that the Father would take this cup away from him. What is the hour in the cup? All throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, the hour and the cup are words used to describe the final judgment of God at the end of the age. Jesus is in such deep anguish, not because he's about to die. Yes, that is coming. Yes, he is not looking forward to that. But even more so, it's because he's about to bear the full weight of God's wrath, his righteous wrath, his holy wrath, his just wrath, his necessary wrath against the sin of his people so that they won't have to bear it at the end of the age. This is why we need to take every sin in our lives seriously from the greatest to the smallest because every sin from greatest to, small, to, to smallest deserves the righteous wrath of God. It deserves a, a full cup poured out on us. 
Because it's not the nature of the sin that determines the punishment, but the nature of the one who sinned against. And even the smallest sin is an act of rebellion against the perfect and holy righteous God who created us. And that makes the one who commits it deserving of God's eternal holy wrath. And we're told elsewhere in scripture that if you fail in one area, you failed in all. If I take an honest look at my life over the last 40 years, maybe 35 because I don't remember the first five, but from birth, we're told from birth, we are born as sinful human beings, right? If I take an honest look at my own life over these last 40 years, I've sinned more times than I can count. The last two weeks, I can't keep a tally. It's too much. But at the cross, the cup of God's wrath that was filled to the brim because of my sins and should have been poured out on me was poured out on Jesus Christ instead. And this is true for every sinner who believes in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. Only God himself is able to bear that much weight. None of us can stand up under God's wrath for one sin. And Christ will bear the full brunt, the full cup, drink it to the dregs, to the very last drop for the sins of every one of his people. But just because he's able to, just because he's able to do this as God doesn't mean that Jesus is emotionless about it. Doesn't mean that he doesn't feel the the anguish and the angst and the the pain and, and all that comes with that of what's about to happen. And the humanity of Jesus is reflected in his prayer. He, he begs the Father to make another way, but he knows, he knows that this is the only way. And his desire to obey the Father is greater than his temptation to forsake his mission. And so Jesus says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. But this isn't a helpless resignation. This isn't a, a begrudging obedience because there's no other way. It's a willful determination. This is, Jesus doesn't succumb to the weight of grief. He succumbs to the will, or submits to the will of the Father. They're not at odds with one another. They're unified in what they've agreed upon as the triune God uh, who has existed before time. What they've agreed upon before the foundation of the world. That the Father would send his Son to redeem a people for himself. And it's oneness with the Father that the Son will give to us through his sacrifice. God's wrath will be poured out on his Son and his love will be poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit instead. But what about Jesus' companions in the garden here? The disciples that have been following him so faithfully, right? Right? How's their unity with Jesus right now? Are they sharing in this grief with him? Look at verse 37. And then he came to them and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And, and again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And then he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While Jesus is pleading with the Father in prayer, his disciples are found sleeping, not once, not twice, but three times. It's certainly a foreshadowing of the three-time denial that Peter is going to have here in just a few, uh, in, in another matter of, of minutes or hours, right? They're found sleeping. They've been up for hours. They, they, all day yesterday, Thursday, they were preparing the, the, the Passover meal. Then they ate it with Jesus. You ever had a full belly? You ever stayed up really late? Add some wine on top of that from the meal? Their eyes are heavy. They're tired. They're exhausted from following him around and from going around in secret, hiding from the officials who want to kill him. Verse 40 says they could not keep their eyes open. Literally, their eyes are weighed down. While Jesus is burdened with grief, the disciples are burdened with sleep. Have you ever been there? Keep in mind that they had all just pledged themselves in faithfulness to the point of death if, with Jesus if that's what it takes. Just a few verses ago, last week at the end, Peter says, even if everybody else falls away, I'll stay. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Jesus said that they would all fall away like sheep scattered after the shepherd is struck. And one by one, they all said, nope, that's not going to happen. In chapter 13, they were on the Mount of Olives when Jesus told them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple and about the coming of the end of the age. And he said, no one knows the day or the hour. And what was the refrain he kept saying over and over and over in that chapter? Do you remember? Watch. Be alert. Keep your eyes open. Why? So that the master doesn't come and find you sleeping. And here... These men who have pledged their allegiance to Christ and their readiness for the kingdom to come, they can't even stay awake in the garden for one hour. How then will they ever be able to stay awake, to stay alert, to keep watch for the coming of the king at the end of the age? You see, it's there that we really have to admit our lack, our complete and utter lack as disciples to do the will of our Savior, to do the will of God who calls us to obedience in these things. Peter, you, you, you pledge. You want, you want it. You think you can, but you can't. We think we can in a lot of ways, don't we? But we can't. But does Jesus get in a fit of rage and storm out of there say forget you guys I've just wasted the past three years of my life 
No. He doesn't write them off. He understands their weakness. He sympathizes with them as the great high priest. He knows that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows that they want to be faithful to him, but their, their physical limitations cause them to give up too easily. Paul talks about this in Romans 7, right? We, we know this struggle, this internal struggle. The things I want to do, do I do those things? No. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I find myself doing. It's this internal battle between my desire to, to obey Christ and, and, and understanding just my, my weakness of my own flesh that keeps me from doing that. But the one who suffered when he was tempted is able to help those who are tempted. That's what Hebrews tells us, right? And so he tells them to stay awake and pray because he knows that they will need God's strength in order to remain faithful. This is one of the reasons that we pray as individuals. This is one of the reasons that we pray here on Sunday mornings as a church because our dependence in discipleship, our dependence on faithfulness to Christ is not found in us. It's found in God's strength through his power by his spirit who dwells in us. We need to stay awake and pray for all the things that concern us because we know that those things have a tendency to tempt us and lead us into sin. We need God's strength to remain faithful and so do these disciples. After he finds them sleeping a third time, Jesus says, that's enough. You've had your sleep. The time has come. The hour is here. The cup is prepared. Jesus' prayer in verse 36 that says, not my will but yours, it's being answered right here. What is the will of the Father? The Son of Man is about to be betrayed to be betrayed into the hands of sinners according to the Father's will. In verse 42, he tells the disciples, get up. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now, I don't know about you, but if you saw your betrayer coming and you knew he was going to betray you and you had the advantage of knowing that, would you stick around? This isn't a call for Jesus and his disciples to get up and, and beat feet and get out of there. This is a steadfast, immovable Christ who does not flee from danger but faces it head on. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Look at verse 43. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob, with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when, they, when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they took hold of him, and they arrested him. There's like a mini sandwich right here in verse 43. If you notice in verse 42 and 44, Jesus says, my betrayer. Mark says, the betrayer. And in the middle of that, Judas. 
one of the 12. Now, we know this by now, but there's no doubting this anymore, right? My betrayer is near, is here, and the very next line says Judas, one of the 12. He's one of Jesus' inner circle of companions. Jesus' betrayer is his friend, and his friend brought a mob brought a crowd. If you remember all, in all of Mark's gospel, almost every time a crowd is mentioned, it's always, uh, almost always in, in terms of, uh, uh, of a distraction or, um, or an obstacle to the disciples following Jesus. And now there's this crowd brought by one of the disciples to arrest the one he calls Rabbi, my great one, to arrest the one that he kisses The Greek word that Mark uses there gives this sense that it's not a simple peck on the cheek. It's this prolonged and lavished lavished kiss that was meant to, to appear like deep devotion to a master. But really, he's just making sure that everybody sees it so they know that Jesus is the one they need to arrest. It's a, it's a pre-approved signal. Judas, this... This man, one of the 12, has a premeditated motive here to betray Jesus. When they saw that sign, they took hold of Christ and they arrested him. Judas, Judas is the first person to make a mockery of Jesus. And it only gets worse from there. And with his mockery comes the first fulfillment of Jesus' predictions in chapters 8 through 10 when he predicts his, his, his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. Mark 9.31 says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then the rest of the language that Mark uses here in this passage is all about the hands of the men. They took hold of him. They arrested him. And with Jesus' betrayal and arrest comes another fulfillment. All the sheep will scatter. Look at verse 47. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day. I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him and they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. The scene turns to chaos in a hurry. From get up, let's go, my betrayer is here, to rabbi and a kiss, to people taking hold of Jesus. Somebody pulls out a sword, cuts off somebody's ear. It's chaos. John's gospel tells us that Peter's the one who drew the sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, and none of us are surprised, right? Mark doesn't elaborate, but instead focuses on what Jesus says 
in verse 48 and 49, again highlighting the sovereignty of God and what's going on and also the responsibility of man and how those things work together. Even though Jesus will go with them peacefully, he will hold them accountable for their actions and judgments against him. He taught them in the temple every single day. You guys know who I am, Jesus says. You've had your chance multiple times to count me as a criminal and arrest me in full view of the public. You know what I'm about. I've never hidden that. They could have arrested him at any time in broad daylight if they really thought that he was that kind of a threat. But they're cowards. They're afraid of the people. The people who listened to Jesus teach in the temple. The people who followed him around and watched him do miracles. The people who, 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 who in their own minds, probably thought he was the Messiah. How are you going to arrest that man in front of them? So instead, they go out in the dead of night under the cover of darkness when Jesus is alone in the garden with his disciples away from the crowds and they bring their own crowd with swords and clubs and they treat him like a criminal. But all of this was done so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, I hope you read that this past week. If not, I hope you read it this week. Isaiah 53 is being fulfilled in these scenes as we're watching them be played out. It says he was despised and rejected by men. It says that he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. It says that he was counted among the rebels. Why do you come out at me with clubs and swords? As if I'm a criminal, a rebel, an insurrectionist, a thief. But Isaiah isn't, the 53 isn't the only scripture being fulfilled here. Verse 50 in Mark chapter 14 says, they all deserted him and ran away. Last week we read in verse 27, same chapter. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. And here in verse 50, that scripture is now fulfilled. They take hold of the shepherd and the sheep scatter. They all, all, every one of them fall away. And in that moment, by their actions, they all said, not what you will, but what I will. And then these last two verses, 51 and 52, they're only found in Mark's gospel, which has led many uh, to believe that the young man Mark is talking about here is himself. And so he joins the others in deserting Jesus, right? He's Jesus at the end here, not even the author of the gospel is there. He flees. Everyone falls away. And Jesus is left alone in the garden with a betrayer and his captors. And he's going to be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. He's abandoned and alone. The scene in the 
Garden of Gethsemane ends with the imagery that takes us back to the Garden of Eden, where the sinfulness of Adam and Eve uh, exposed them to nakedness and shame as they ran and they hid from God. But what did God do? He condemned them to death. They were under the righteous wrath of God. But what did he do? He clothed their nakedness with animal skins. He provided them a covering through a sacrifice. And he pointed them to a day to come where their guilt and shame would be removed by the sacrifice of a son, a more perfect sacrifice, a final sacrifice. Something that animals could never do. Get up. Let's go. The hour is here. The day has come. That covering, that sacrifice is being arrested. As Christ is taken into custody, he will go to the cross and become the new covering for sinful people. He will be condemned to death in their place and he will remove their guilt and shame before a holy God. And on the third day, Jesus himself will leave his own linens behind. Grave clothes. They'll remain in the empty tomb as our Savior rises victorious, having satisfied the wrath of God and secured the justification of all who believe in him because of Christ's sacrifice, we no longer have to flee from God in nakedness and shame. Praise God. Now we can run to the Father over and over and over again when we sin. And we can confess them freely to him because we've been covered, we've been forgiven, and the love of God has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Because Christ drank the wrath of God to the very last drop. We need to agonize with Christ in the garden alone and rejected so that we can rejoice with Christ in salvation alone. Christ alone. He's alone in the garden because only Christ alone can secure salvation for those who believe. No one else in that scene has the power to do that. Christ alone remained perfectly obedient to the Father even in the midst of the crushing temptation to flee. Christ alone is able to sympathize with our weakness because he himself experienced them uh, weakness to their full extent. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Christ alone is the only one. He's the only one who is without sin in the midst of those temptations. Christ alone can reconcile us to the Father and make us one with him in love because Christ alone is the propitiation for our sins. He turned away God's wrath off of us, the Father's wrath away from us and onto himself so that we now can receive the favor of God instead. Christ alone loves sinners enough to die faithfully for those who are unfaithful to him. Christ alone endured the betrayal of a friend so that he can lay his own life down for his friends. 
Christ alone was unjustly condemned so that we can be justified and declared righteous before the ultimate judge. Christ alone was taken into the hands of evil men so he could deliver us from temptation and from the hand of the evil one. We need to feel as best we can the agony here and what it costs our Savior to save us. But praise God, we do not have to stay there. Praise God that we can rejoice in the sweetness of our Savior. A man named Chris Thomas says, unless I am first willing to say that the gospel is required for my weakness, I will never experience the strength of Christ that comes through grace. We have to be honest about what Christ suffered so that we can rejoice in what we've gained. In the book, The Valley of Vision, it's a collection of Puritan prayers. It says, there is no treasure so wonderful as that continuous experience of thy grace toward me, which alone can subdue the risings of sin within. Give me more of it. May we never fail to feel the weight of what Christ has done for us. But may we never crush ourselves under that weight because we have been forgiven. Christ is our Savior alone. So as individuals, this is what we proclaim. We don't put any hope in ourselves. We don't put any hope in who we vote for. We don't put any hope in this building. We don't put any hope in anything that we can say or do because Christ has said and done it. It's Christ alone on whom we, we rely for our salvation, for our unity with the Father. And as a church, as a corporate body of Christ, it must be Christ alone that we profess here. We have no true gospel if Christ is not it. And we are not a true church if we don't proclaim Christ and Christ alone. How can we be his body otherwise? So as we think about the garden, may it tenderize our hearts May we feel and, and honestly declare our need for what Christ has done. And may we do that over and over and over. But we, may we do that not heaped in guilt, but rejoicing in freedom as those who've been forgiven. Because the agony of the garden led to the cross. And the cross led to the grave. And the grave stands empty even today. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we cannot comprehend the depth of the pain and suffering that you felt both in the garden and on the cross.
And yet we know in our hearts that our sin has crushed us under the weight of God's wrath. And without you, we would never come out under it. And so, Lord, we pray that we never look at the garden without the cross, that we never look at the cross without the empty tomb, and that we never look at the empty tomb without the ascension of Christ back to the right hand of the Father, and that we never look at the ascension without the return that you have promised. And may we never be caught sleeping while we wait for that fulfillment. We praise you, God, that you as our great high priest, Jesus, experienced all that we could ever experience, that you know our pain more than we could ever know yours, and you endured it all for our sake. And we pray that we would live lives worthy of that, not to earn it, not to keep it, but because we've been freely given it in Christ and Christ alone. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.